Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Solving the Puzzle with Dr. Datis Karazian, informing you about evidence-based strategies for autoimmune disease, brain health issues, Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, gut health problems, and many other chronic health conditions. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at drknews.com. Hi, everyone. Today's topic is how diet and inflammation uh, impact your whole body. So let's first of all, let's talk about inflammation. And when you look at inflammation, um, the key things is that, you know, it, it can express in different tissues. And we'll talk about how inflammation gets triggered, what happens to our anti-inflammatory system as we age, as we get older, how different uh, medical conditions, healthcare conditions impact or inflammation, and then how diet plays a role in this whole thing. And, um, you know, the, the key concept is that is that inflammation is normally a process we use to destroy pathogens or get rid of cells, right? So inflammation is a mechanism where we destroy a pathogen, or if we have cells that are no longer working, we use our immune system to, to, to destroy them so we can have space room for new immune cells, uh, new tissue cells. Now, um, the key thing with inflammation, and one of the first questions to ask is, is how do you know if you're inflamed? Well, one of the things you'll know if, that if you're inflamed is that if it's what we call systemic inflammation, where the inflammation is throughout your whole body, that pretty much every major system in your body may have some degree of symptoms. So let's start with the brain. When you're inflamed, uh, one of the things that happens is um, you will notice that you will have brain fog. You can't really think clearly. You can't focus. You can't concentrate. And one of the things that happens when your body has this inflammatory cascade and inflammation is happening is the inflammatory mediators activate cells in the brain called glia cells. And then glia cells uh, turn on an inflammatory response in the brain. So when that happens, the speed of how nerves fire slows down and uh, that can really slow down your brain. So basically, uh, when your whole body's inflamed uh, at the brain level, what you really notice is that your brain is just much slower. And there could be days where um, your brain function isn't as good as other days. There's days you're not as sharp as other days. And one of the reasons that can happen is uh, is from inflammation. So we know that, that that takes place as far as basically slowing down our brain. Now, another thing that happens when we have systemic inflammation is we have an impact in our energy powerhouse our mitochondria in our cells. And... Um, the each one of our cells has a factory where we make energy called ATP. And there's a process called mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation or uncoupling where we produce energy. Now, these, these mitochondrial pathways can, as we say, uncouple when there's inflammation and they become less efficient. So another key thing that happens when the whole body is inflamed is that a person will get really, really tired. Right, so brain fog and then fatigue is is really common, and this can also impact specific tissues. So if it impacts muscles and uh, mitochondria and muscles, it's really common just to feel like like a heavy arm, a heavy leg, um, just feel like your muscles don't move. You may have a hard time recovering. So those are like the main um, clinical presentations of 
of systemic inflammation. Now, if there's inflammation in the gut, in the gastrointestinal tract, you could have severe bloating and distension and, and feel those types of reactions. Um, so it can have blood, it can have inflammation in your blood vessels, which um, can injure blood vessels. You may not have any symptoms, but you know this puts part of the process. And overall, when your body is chronically inflamed, it does speed up brain degeneration, joint degeneration, um, promotes chronic diseases. Uh, it's just, you know, not the best thing. So if you're always tired, fatigued, your brain is slower, your muscles hurt, um, that could be a sign that you just have some degree of systemic inflammation. Now, the other key thing about inflammation is that inflammation puts fuel in the fire wherever there are injured cells or there already where there's already some fire. So for example, if you had uh, torn your lumbar disc, you had a disc injury or herniation, uh, when you get inflamed, it might go right to your back. Someone else may have had a traumatic brain injury and they've injured, let's say, their frontal lobe. And when they get inflamed, they lose focus and attention and concentration. Um, someone else may have had injury to the brain in, in a different area, maybe their cerebellum. When they get inflammation, they get dizziness or, or vertigo or whatever the case may be. Someone may be um, suffering from degeneration in their in their hand from injuries, uh, some kind of arthritis. So when they get inflammation, it just goes right to where that injury is. And if you have that, even though it sounds terrible, um, it does give you a clue that your body's inflamed. So if you have an injury that gets activated, uh, it's a clue that uh, there is something triggering that response. And for some people, like making a drastic change to their diet makes a huge impact on those types of symptoms. So they kind of have an early signaling system that, that the body's inflamed because uh, they actually feel it wherever their past injuries have been. Now, when you're looking at, uh, you know, this whole systemic inflammation part of it, it's really a battle that we all have to deal with uh, as we all get older. And some people end up with conditions that turn on the immune system very aggressively um, that really then promote this chronic systemic inflammatory response. Now, when you're looking at um, uh, the uh, what causes inflammation, right? So why do we get... So first of all, you should know that your inflammatory or anti-inflammatory system that fights inflammation starts to decline as you get older. So just age alone, for many of us, is going to start to decline our uh, ability to deal with inflammation. So as we get older, we get more inflamed. And sometimes what we call aging and just not feeling good and not be able to recover and body hurts all the time and can't think and, can fo and can't focus is really just based on the inflammatory system being activated without enough counteractive anti-inflammatory mechanisms. So when you're looking at inflammation, um, the next question to ask is, okay, so you know, I feel awful if I have inflammation, my brain slows down, my body hurts, wherever is injury, it gets worse. And if it's in the GI tract, you could have um, breakdown of your tight junction, you get bloating and distension and all the things that go along with that as well. So if you're systemically inflamed, then they go, well, what causes inflammation? So there's two main causes for inflammation. One is um, an imbalance of free radicals versus antioxidants. And when we say antioxidants, your body makes uh, its own antioxidants. And then you can also eat foods that are high in antioxidants, right? Um, some people supplement with various antioxidants, but if if the your body is having more free radical production than antioxidants, then you can definitely have a, uh, a higher degree of inflammation. So let's talk about that for a second. So a free radical, what's a free radical? A free radical is basically uh, a molecule that's going to uh, oxidize or accept an electron. So think of it this way. 
there are some chemicals that are free radicals that will basically change your other cells. They'll take an electron from another cell and that'll cause those uh, molecules. Um, so the, 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 they take an electron from a molecule and when they take a molecule from that cell, that cell gets destroyed. So things that are free radicals are things that are harmful to us, right? And one of the things that makes them harmful to us is because they, they uh, impact our molecules. So formaldehyde or benzene or um, chemicals in the environment, uh, toxic poisons, those things are all classified as dangerous for us or carcinogenic because they're high in free radicals, right? And these free radicals uh, are unstable uh, uh, molecules that have to take an electron and this then causes tissue destruction. Now, our body's defense against uh, free radicals that we're, you know, we're all exposed to is to make antioxidants. And there's different antioxidant systems in the body. One uh, involves the production of an antioxidant called glutathione, and one involves the production of an antioxidant that your body makes called superoxide, right? And one of the things we know is just that aging alone uh, declines the activity of the enzymes that make our own body's natural antioxidants. So that's that's a key thing, that we can have decreased production of antioxidants. So as we get older, we become much, much more sensitive to free radicals. Now, free radicals could just be environmental. Free radicals could be um, pesticides, chemicals in food. Um, free radicals um, could be in your home. Maybe you have lots of chemicals in your home. But the point is, or you may be sensitive to like uh, car exhaust or um, cigarette smoke or something, or you may feel worse when you're around those things. So those are, um, th that's the basic concept of one main mechanism of inflammation. So one main mechanism of inflammation is you get exposed to free radicals and do you have the ability to have enough antioxidants to deal with it. And the way antioxidants work is these, radical, these free radicals are trying to to manipulate electrons. And what the free radical, what the antioxidant does is just takes the bullet so your cells don't get injured, right? So instead of the free radical going through and let's say damaging your joint or damaging your brain or damaging another tissue in your body, an antioxidant comes in and then stabilizes that free radical molecule so it can no longer injure cells and then your tissues are protected. Now, if you don't have enough antioxidants, those free radicals destroy the tissues and then those injured cells then activate your immune system to destroy them and that triggers the whole inflammatory response. And when we say inflammatory response, when the immune system has to get rid of tissue or deal with a pathogen or, or get rid of a cell that's been injured by a free radical, it produces what are called cell protein cytokines and these cytokines then cause what we call inflammation, so that the the activation of brain fog, uh, muscle weakness, the mitochondria making energy not working, those are all generated by the immune system. So in a sense, you get exposed to, let's say, I don't know, air pollution. Air pollution is going to have a different impact on different people, one of the reasons being uh, not just the chemical, but their pre-existing antioxidant status. So if these molecules come in, and there's lots of free radicals. For some people, they'll have a high degree of antioxidants produced. They'll immediately quench it. There's no effect. The person doesn't notice anything. For someone else, their free radicals, their free radical load is greater than what they can, they, they have enough antioxidants for. So then the free radicals start to destroy tissue. Once the tissue gets destroyed, the immune system has to now get rid of these injured tissues. It gets activated, produces these proteins, and the whole body gets inflamed. 
So one of the most overlooked things is just this relationship between um, you know, free radicals and our antioxidant systems. Now, typically, uh, we're going to go back to this in a second here, but what, what helps us make our own antioxidants? So one of the most impactful ways to raise your own antioxidants is basically to exercise. And when you exercise, what happens is you actually create oxidative stress, like your body is actually in the exercise period where tissues are breaking down and you're tearing muscles and you're running and hitting your tissues and those tissues are dealing with the trauma. Um, that's an, actually an inflammatory inflammatory state. So you actually create some free radicals when you exercise. But then what happens is after you're done exercising, your enzymes that called glutathione peroxidase and superoxide dismutase, these enzymes get churned on and you get high production and massive production of antioxidants that last for hours and hours and hours and hours after your workout that then have a protective effect. Um, so we know that, um, for example, one of the best ways to raise your own antioxidants is to exercise. And this is why when people start to get really inflamed, they go downhill because just exercising is really hard for them because their body hurts and they feel tired and they can't recover from a workout. But once they kind of figure out how to break through that and start to move and start to work out, um, they'll start to make their own antioxidants and they notice they're just not as inflamed as they used to be. So inflammation is, is critical. And many studies done on pain, chronic pain management, because inflammation drives pain, has really found that um, the, the single variable that has the biggest impact in getting rid of chronic pain syndromes is to have movement and exercise. So that movement and exercise is actually changing the chemistry of your body to make your own antioxidants. Now foods um, can, can, can do two things. Foods can... Um, support the enzymes that make uh, antioxidants. Like, for example, one of the main antioxidants your body makes is, is glutathione. Your body needs things like vitamin C. It needs things like sulfur from your foods like garlic and onions. It needs um, selenium. Um, it, needs certain, it needs a healthy diet in order to be able to make those. So if your diet's not healthy, you may, you know, may not be as optimal as making antioxidants. And studies have shown when people take things like N-acetylcysteine or selenium or vitamin C, their actual antioxidant enzymes turn on, like glutathione. So we know that a healthy diet's important and movement's important. And what happens to a lot of people that get chronic is they get stuck in this, this chronic inflammatory cascade and they don't realize that the free radical part of it is an issue. Now, I said there's two things that cause inflammation. So one is free radicals, which we've been talking about for a while. And the second one is activation of immune cells. And your immune cells can be activated by the environment. It could be from foods you ingest, it could be from infections, or it could be from environmental chemicals. And one of the things um, that happens as we get older, as time goes by, is we lose what's called immune tolerance. Immune tolerance is our body's ability to determine how much or even to react or not react against a foreign compound. The foreign compound could be a food protein, the foreign compound could be um, a pathogen. The foreign compound can be um, a chemical or things like that. And the ones we're really concerned about is chemicals and uh, um, foods, right? We want our body to be able to deal with pathogens. So once we lose our immune tolerance, which happens as we get older, we start to develop more food sensitivities. We start to react to the environment more. And that's different than the antioxidant system. It's just it's, it's, its, own, it's, its own model. And... Um, when the immune system starts to dysregulate and you start to lose this immune tolerance pathway, um, you can also have greater inflammation. So, you know, like as we get older, you know, a lot of times, I'll give you an example. 
sometimes I'll see a patient and they're chronic. Maybe I see a patient who's 35 or 40 and and they're really not feeling well for whatever the reasons are. And I go, when would you, when would you say it was the last time you felt normal? What's your goal? And they're like, I'd like to feel like I did when I was 18. Like, well, there's a lot of things that are not going to make that possible to some degree. Um, you know, we, you know, as we get older, we have things that happen to our cells and tissues. Now, that's not to say that some people don't. Some people have very, very fit immune tolerance. Some people have very, very high antioxidant production, and they feel like they're 18 even though when they're 40. But for some people, um, they don't, you know, they just think um, that's expected. Well, it's not expected. So we, we have some sort of decline in our antioxidant-producing systems and our immune tolerance pathways. So when you combine our body's inability to make as anti- antioxidants as efficiently as possible as we get older, and you combine that with as our immune system tolerance or ability to not react to foods and chemicals goes down over time, now you get this pattern where a person becomes very, very uh, prone to have foods and free radicals and chemicals trigger inflammation, and then they get inflammation. And most of the chronic diseases of aging are really inflammatory diseases, and those that are most inflamed seem to suffer from those. And then you have people that um, throughout their entire life, they've worked out, they've exercised, they ate really well, they um, reduced uh, unhealthy foods. And, you know, foods can have free radicals. Like when you fry foods, you're eating uh, free radicals. Um, bronzing, uh, caramelization of foods, or, you know, barbecuing foods, the charcoal, those are all free radicals. So if someone's been eating a lot of, uh, you know, foods that are very inflammatory, um, and not eating enough anti-inflammatory foods, that can be an issue. And we also can get antioxidants from 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 our uh, diet. Instead of making our own, we can get antioxidants we ingest, but then protect us from free radicals in our environment. And then those antioxidants are basically foods that have a lot of color, like blueberries, acai, uh, broccoli, salmon. Um, those have very high levels of antioxidants that we can ingest with, that are there in our system to protect us against these other free radicals. So, you know, when we go back to the topic, how diet and inflammation impact your whole body, um, let me kind of just recap really quick, uh, just to make things simple. Um, diet and inflammation impact the whole body by two mechanisms. One of them is you have greater prooxidants and antioxidants. And number two is you start to lose your immune tolerance. And so, so then you start reacting to the environment and chemicals from an immune cell perspective, not from a free radical perspective. So um, it's not uncommon to see these things change. Now, as someone that gets older, uh, all of us as we get older, you know, we can really try to optimize, first of all, our antioxidant strategies. So optimizing your antioxidant strategies would be number one, but studies clearly show that exercise and movement make a difference. So if you exercise regularly, you'll have a higher production of antioxidants. And once you get in that routine, then you start to to, to develop those on your own. When you become sedentary, you, you produce less antioxidants. The other key thing is you can ingest foods that are high in antioxidants. So eating very good, colorful vegetables and fruits really have high sources of antioxidants. Um, you can supplement with antioxidants. Um, you can take superfoods like acai uh, extract or your blueberry extract. You can think takes like things like vitamin C, vitamin E, they have antioxidant properties. Um, there's no shortage of different antioxidant supplements in the nutritional world, right? There's lots of things available. So those are things you can do with the anti, 
the free radical part of it. At the same time, if you, you can try to reduce your uh, exposure to pro-inflammatory free radical producing foods, fried foods, partially hydrogenated foods, foods that come in a back, bag or box, um, uh, caramelized uh, heated foods where, the, where you get uh, changes in the color of the food, which you know tastes great, but those are free radicals. So those are the those are the key things with that. Now, as far as the immune part of it goes, the immune part of it is your antioxidant system, your immune tolerance system, I should say, not your anti. Your another part of the inflammation, sorry, is your immune, immune part of it. And as you get older, you can lose your immune tolerance. Now, the easiest way to improve your immune tolerance from diet and lifestyle, and we'll take questions here just in a second. So thanks for hanging in there. Um, is by diversifying your microbiome. So if you eat if if you eat a diverse list of vegetables and fruits and hopefully very diverse color vegetables and fruits, you can then also improve your gut immune tolerance, which will make you less reactive to foods and chemicals from the environment if your if your tolerance and micro improves and your microbiome gets more diverse. And that also provides antioxidants. So you know it always comes back to the same thing. If you eat a diverse list of vegetables and fruits um, and, and and exercise and move, you have significant degrees of protection. Now there are times when people do that and they still inflamed. A classic example is a patient that has an autoimmune disease. A patient that has an autoimmune disease may go, "Hey, listen, I." I exercise every day. My diet's super clean. I take handfuls of antioxidants and supplements. I still have inflammation. Well, that's 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 the condition now. That is uh, a disease or a dysfunction in the immune system that is making a person more prone. And if a person has autoimmunity, um, then they have to especially make sure that their antioxidant status levels are greater than their free radicals. And they have to really make sure that they're... Thank you. Hi. Hi. That the microbiome is diverse and they can really improve their tolerance. So we do have a, um, I should also, we did, we just, by the way, we did just launch, before we get the questions, we did just launched our gut puzzle program. It's now available. People are enrolled. People are taking it. We're doing um, live um, questions and answers in our, in our community, the people who have enrolled. And, uh, you know that's the, that's there if you're interested in taking it. The gut health solving the puzzle program walks you through how to support your gut and uh, really um, implement strategies to how to figure out what you need to do, what you need to support, and try to go through the whole process. So if you check out Dr. K News DRK you'll see a program called Gut Health Solving the Puzzle, and that's our newest program, and it's just launched a few days ago. So you might want to check that out if you have any interest. Okay, we also do have a course on oral tolerance where we talk about all the mechanisms of oral tolerance in greater detail um, and how it all works and the means to behind it. If you have interest in that, you can, you can also check that out at Dr. Kenyus. Okay, questions? Hi. Hi. Okay, so um, Karen is asking, does consumption of alcohol produce free radicals? Yes. No. So consumption of alcohol <laughs> does produce free radicals. And this is, you know, uh, not the best thing. So uh, aldehydes... They have the ability to destroy tissue and then trigger that whole inflammatory response. So alcohol is definitely not a superfood. <laughs> it's not, uh, yeah. <laughs> it could be super great for it's, for you at certain times, but it's not a superfood. <laughs> that's kidding. Okay, so um, Tamara is asking, I think that's how you say it, um, there's so many supplements that are labeled quote-unquote anti-inflammatory, like right. turmeric, omegas, yes. glutathione, whatever. Yeah. But they never say what kind of inflammation it's addressing. 
Right. Is it possible to link a supplement slash foods you're eating to specific types of inflammation? Right. So basically, yeah. Okay. And, and, it, and it's not that comp. It's not. It's not that simple. simple. So yeah. So when you're looking at what's an anti-inflammatory or antioxidant, things that are anti-inflammatory and antioxidants share similar properties. So what they do is they really protect the body from free radicals and and there's different different mechanisms for different things. So you'll have a list of anti-inflammatory things like um, I don't know vitamin E, vitamin A that have an impact on uh, free radicals. Then you can have things like fish oils that may impact a specific pathway of inflammation called prostaglandins and leukotrienes. Then you may have another thing compound that's an antihistamine that blocks histamine, so like environmental allergies don't trigger the immune response. Then you have um, compounds like resveratrol or turmeric that block a specific pathway called NF-kappa-B that triggers the inflammatory vicious cycle to produce these proteins within the cell. And in reality, a lot of these compounds kind of do a lot of these things all at once. Um, so it's going to be it's going to be kind of hard to do that. Now, in a real clinical setting, if you see someone who's got lots of pain and inflammation, and you just see that they don't have any healthy fats in their diet, they may benefit from fish oils because you know that that may be a prostaglandin pathway. If you see someone who's got lots of chronic pain and inflammation and just don't eat any antioxidant foods, things like Turmeric, resveratrol, pomegranate extract, aside, could be very beneficial. And if you want to just kind of get a spectrum of like all the different antioxidants, I would say the top ones would be, uh, or anti-inflammatories, I should say, would be resveratrol and turmeric. Lots of good research behind those. Very effective. Um, pomegranate extract, I really think is fantastic. Acai extract is really fantastic. Um, the classical ones, vitamin A, vitamin C, are very simple and easy. They have very good antioxidant properties. And then if you can find liposomal glutathione, which is like an easily absorbable form of glutathione, that would be a really good way to, to support your antioxidants. So I, I understand what you're saying, but the frustration of trying which chem, that pathway you want, you're just a very intelligent consumer that most nutritional candy manufacturers don't really think about. Okay. Um, Leah's asking, do you consider CRP on a full blood count a good starting point to look for systemic inflammation and what number do you consider acceptable? Right. So for those of you guys that aren't familiar with it, there's a, there's a blood biomarker that gets ordered on routine blood tests called C-reactive protein. And C-reactive protein is a protein that's synthesized in the liver. And remember I told you when you have an immune response, these immune cells release cytokines, um, these proteins that then trigger the immune response. Um, those cytokines end up in the liver and they get metabolized to a protein called C-reactive protein. And this is why um, it's been used as a general marker for inflammation. So if you have a lot of inflammation, then your C-reactive protein levels can go up. Now, um, the laboratory ranges are pretty useful uh, with C-reactive protein. I mean, when you start to get levels in the th above three or above five, there's definitely inflammation. Some people have C-reactive proteins of 50. Some people have C-reactive levels even higher than that, over 100. But there's people that have significant and severe inflammation, and they don't show up with any abnormalities in C-reactive protein. And part of the reason is because they're making cytokines in a different pathway that isn't metabolized into C-reactive protein. So C-reactive protein isn't the measurement for all inflammation. If, however, if you have a high C-reactive protein, let's say your C-reactive protein levels are 9, um, you can use that as a baseline to see if your inflammation is going down. 
Now, typically, when you see your C-reactive proteins really high, um, let's say about five or six, there's some kind of usually inflammatory condition. It could be an infection, it could be an autoimmune disease, it could be, um, you know, anything really that's triggering your immune response that, that's chronic. So you really want to try to identify it. But don't let C-reactive protein be your only biomarker <clears throat> because not all inflammatory pathways will, will, will increase production of CRP. Okay, Kami is asking, in your book, Why Do I Still Have Thyroid Symptoms? You recommend glutathione and dismutase as liposomal creams. Why is that, why is that better than oral supplementation? So there's been ways to take antioxidants. Um, liposomal cream is a way to really... Um, so some liposomal creams can get into actual circulation and have an impact um, on raising levels. Uh, but a lot of, also a lot of liposomal creams can be applied to get it right into the tissue. So if you have like a, a muscle injury or if your son's got a swollen thyroid gland or, you know, they have a swollen, swollen tissue joint or something, the liposomal delivery of like a cream can help kind of get it right into that tissue. When you're trying to deal with systemic uh, inflammation, um, it's really nice to take an oral supplement and have the effects go through your gut and make a big difference there. Okay. So, uh, is liposomal glutathione suitable for children? If so, what per body weight? Yeah, so liposomal glutathione is just an antioxidant. There's no contraindications for age. Um, it's just basically sulfur and some basic amino acids that are typically found in food. Um, you know, dosages, there's no specific, it's dosage isn't, isn't based on age or body weight. It's, uh, you know, the type of glutathione you can take sometimes can cause like stomach irritability if you take too much. Um, but there isn't, there aren't any specific guidelines or standards for glutathione levels based on age and dosage. So, you know, what you're really left with is what, what's available to you when you go to the health food store and you have, let's say, a source, and then you can just try the standard dose and see how they do. And if it's a child, you can you know start small and then work their way up and make sure that uh, their their system can tolerate it. Because things like for some antioxidants are, are still your body has to be able to digest them, right? Like glutathione, and you have to body has to be able to process sulfur. It's very high in sulfur. Um, certain certain flavonoids like the fibers, your body has to be able to fiber to digest them as well. Okay, Susan's also reminding people you have a full talk on glutathione. Um, oh yeah. This Facebook thing. Thank you. Susan. Put a link. Yeah. We did a whole uh, presentation or uh, talk. I should chat. I don't know what we call these things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> on go to thyme. <laughs> Thursday talk. Thursday talk or Thursday noon. Okay. And uh, Jen is asking, can insulin resistance be a source of chronic inflammation? Yes, absolutely. So insulin resistance can app is one of the major causes of chronic inflammation and, um, and it triggers the immune response. And it also creates free radicals and oxidative stress. So it activates both things that we talked about. So if you, insulin, by the way, insulin is a hormone your body releases. When you eat sugar or carbohydrates, um, your body, or anytime your glucose levels go high in your, in your bloodstream, your pancreas releases insulin to get that glucose into the cells so then you can use it for energy. But when people eat too much carbohydrates or too much starch, too much sugar, the receptor sites that respond to insulin don't work as well, and the body starts to become what's called insulin resistant. In order to compensate for that, those receptors not working, the pancreas pumps out more and more insulin. But insulin will do a few things. Insulin um, will will have a tendency to, as a hormone, trigger inflammatory responses with the immune system, so your immune system gets, gets greater a aggravation. And then also, 
if a person gets insulin resistance where they can't carry the glucose they had for the meals into their cells, free radicals start to destroy that glucose and produce what are called advanced glycation end products. And these become super, super strong free radicals, and they really destroy um, tissues. This is why diabetics end up with um, neuropathies and uh, nephropathies. The kidneys get injured, the nerves get injured because of this glucose that gets converted by free radicals into a, a very strong, stronger free radical that then starts to destroy tissues. So insulin resistance will definitely cause inflammation without question. And your biggest clue, by the way, because insulin resistance is when you eat a meal, you get tired and you fatigue and you want to take a nap. That's a sign of some degree of insulin resistance. So what should happen when you eat a meal is um, you're just not hungry. But if you eat a meal and need to crash and need to take a nap, that's a sign of insulin resistance. Okay. Um, Karis, if someone has chronic inflammation, can too much exercise be a, yes. be counterproductive? Yeah, so if you have chronic inflammation, you have to be careful with exercise because it's like in order for your body to make antioxidants from exercise, you got to get past that window of actually making free radicals, right? So if you have, for example, a person who's got really severe inflammation, like a patient with autoimmune disease or a patient with diabetes that has really high insulin levels, right? Um, they may exercise and they may crash and be in bed for days and days and days because they their free radical load was so much... Uh, already, and then they added more free radicals to it, and their antioxidant jumping in couldn't couldn't compensate for that. So now they're just inflamed from their from their workout. So you see that all the time. You see people that have chronic inflammatory conditions, whether it's like an inflammatory bowel disease or diabetes or an autoimmune disease like Hashimoto's or rheumatoid arthritis or whatever. Um, those uh, those people are extremely sensitive to exercise and they have all the best intentions to exercise them, but they just crash and get worse. And so with them, what you have to, you know, with people that are suffering from that, what they have to do is they have to kind of work their way up. So maybe they go for a light, light walk or a jog and kind of go there. Or for some of them, they have to really clean their diet. They got to get rid of foods that they're reacting to. Most common ones are gluten, dairy, soy, egg. They have to start eating uh, a diverse vegetable plant fiber diet to diversify the microbiome, get rid of the fried foods, and really change their free radical inflammation load first and then implement exercise so they don't crash and fall apart as much. But, but those things that absolutely happen. So you have to have some degree of uh, potential to, when you exercise, to get through that free radical initial response to then make your antioxidants. And if you can't get through it, then you may have to work with diet and lifestyle, diet and nutrition to then change your free radical load and, and down a little bit and maybe even take some antioxidants, get that up, so then you can start to exercise and, and not fall apart. Okay, Alexander's asking, what is the relationship between inflammation and stress? Oopsie. Right. So this is... It went away. He basically was saying um, when he gets stress symptoms, um, his tennis elbow flares up. Right. So there's relationships there that are published in the literature, uh, and uh, it's part of a mechanism called neurogenic inflammation, where um, high stress activity in the brain turns on the stress response in the brain, and this then turns on um, chemical pathways called C-fibers, C-fibers and different inflammatory substances like substance P that then cause inflammation. And... Uh, 
it's not just so lack of sleep also has caused causes that and stress causes that unhealthy social relationships cause that so you can get inflamed not just from diet and food you can get inflamed from unhealthy relationships you can get you can get uh inflammation from lack of sleep um and, and just from stress in life those things can all really trigger the inflammatory cascade so they so the mechanism that's known to cause these is uh neurogenic inflammation and this is part of what they call the neuroendocrine immune response uh neuro being being brain like your cognition your thoughts your brain needs to have sleep for this system to work and also unfortunately as we age our neuroendocrine immune system becomes less efficient so we're we're more prone to this neurogenic inflammation yeah (laughs) so you know that's the key thing as as we get older like listen as we all get older you have to really make sure you focus on improving your gut and improve your microbiome diversity and really eat a lot of antioxidants. Your body's not making as much as it used to. It's really important to get some type of physical activity in. It's really important. Now, sleep really matters. <laughs> uh, uh, social relationships really matter because they can really make you unhealthy. You can really not function well if you are in an event where you get so stressed out being around certain people. So all those things start to, to, to make a bigger difference on your physiology as time goes on. So they're important to address. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, you can definitely have neuroendocrine immune responses to, uh, as a trigger for inflammation. These are all under the field of uh, neurogenic inflammation. And it's basically stress or sleep um, and, and all these social relationships can all do that. Yeah, that's yeah, And that's important too because you could have someone who's really inflamed. They're going, I don't have any more foods to cut out. Right. I'm taking handfuls and bags of supplements. They go, well, what else is going on? I hate my job. I hate my <laughs> spouse. I hate my, <laughs> I'm not getting enough sleep. Yeah. I ate my everything, and, and then like, well, that's going to cause you know inflammation from a different mechanism. Right, exactly. Okay, so then Vera is asking, what are markers of neurogen- neurogenic inflammation? Is there any way to measure them? Measure it, measure them. There's no uh, laboratory test to measure neurogenic inflammation commercially. Like you, as a patient, walk in and do it. These yeah. are all done in research labs with specific tissue cultures and cells. So you can't just like go to your doctor and go, I want to get my neurogenic inflammation system checked. We don't have the ability to do that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, so Ginny's asking, can turmeric be helpful for dampening inflammation no matter the source of the inflammation? Like, is it just a good general overall inflammatory dampener? Turmeric. So turmeric uh, has curcuminoids and curcuminoids, so not all turmeric is the same, by the way. So the higher the Active curcuminoids is going to be a factor in how much inflammation it quenches. So if you have, uh, whenever you use turmeric, you want to use high curcuminoids, active curcuminoids, to really to really support you. And the curcuminoids have a general anti-inflammatory effect, and they have there's multiple review papers published now on, on benefits of all different types of mechanisms throughout the body. So it'd be good, a good idea, uh, to just to take. You know, everyone's got to like have to look in their life and go what's the cost benefit value for some people they'll take turmeric and go, i don't feel any better it's not worth the cost for me for other people they're like i'm going to take turmeric because because i believe in prevention and i think it's going to help me over time so their cost people people have different cost benefit ratios right so like in our family we take flavonoids and curcuminoids and everything every day and i take them i don't necessarily notice a big difference but right. I, but i trust the physiology that it's impacting over time is going to have a positive effect, effect for me. So the cost benefit is there for me. For other people, it may not be. So turmeric is a general, is a very good general antioxidant, anti-inflammatory compound, but it may not be your mechanism. Like you may have your, like you, you may, may have your inflammation triggered by the environment, by 
pollen or things that you're breathing or dust. Mm-hmm. And maybe a natural antihistamine will be a greater anti-inflammatory for you. You could have, um, a, you could be a fat phobic person and never eat any healthy fats and never eat avocado and never eat fish because you don't like the way fish tastes and you really don't have any prostaglandins that are anti-inflammatory which come from those. So for you taking turmeric wouldn't have much difference but if you took a very high quality fish oil that may have a difference. So yeah, there are, you know there are some specifics. Some people will only respond to one thing or another. Um, and there has to be some trial and error at times to kind of figure that out. Yeah. Okay, Thomas is asking, what, what do you know about chronic inflammatory response syndrome? That's a big question. What is it? Sorry, it just popped up. Chronic what? Inflammatory response syndrome? I mean, you know what that it's just is? the underlying immune system is already activated by some trigger and they don't know what to call it, so they call it a syndrome. A lot, of, a lot of people would fall underneath that category, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, it's just basically a, a non-obvious form of chronic inflammatory triggers that are making the immune system overactivated. And it goes back to, is it environmental? Is it, is it allergies? Is it sensitivities? Is it lack of antioxidants? Is it loss of immune tolerance? You kind of have to go through that thought process to, to, to manage it. Okay. Evelyn is saying, asking. As I have hot, as I have heavy metals, is it still okay to take glutathione? Well, let me tell you, everyone's got heavy metals. You're yeah. not alone. Um, if you get tests from most people, they're going to have heavy metals. So, glutathione is not a problem for people that have heavy metals. As a matter of fact, glutathione uh, can protect your tissues from the free radical part of heavy metals. And then glutathione uh, has actually been shown to have some natural chelation properties, where it can maybe bind and help eliminate some of those chemicals out of the body. Um, some of these have been done in animal studies. So glutathione is not contraindicated if you have metals. It's actually, if you have any kind of environmental load and you want to decrease the ex- ex- exposure in your cells with a free radical perspective, you should take antioxidants, and glutathione is a great one. Okay. Debbie, do you see loss of tolerance happening with breast implants? So lo- Yeah, so loss, loss of tolerance can happen from... Well, here's the thing. Not everyone who's going to get breast implants is going to get sick, and not everyone who is exposed to a chemical is going to have a reaction. So there's different things that cause loss of immune tolerance. And and for those, by the way, that have already lost their immune tolerance, they may be the ones that really react to abnormal to a breast implant or really react to bad air quality day or something like that, right? Um, But uh, you can lose your immune tolerance for lots of different mechanisms. It could be chronically exposed chemicals can dysregulate your immune cells. You can have inflammatory diet that breaks your tight junctions. You can have um, various things with, that disrupt what are called regulatory T cells. Um, we don't really know all the different f- triggers that cause someone to lose immune tolerance, uh, but uh, implants themselves shouldn't cause you to lose tolerance uh, for, to some degree. However, for some people, they're extremely sensitive to the chemicals in implants, and they don't have enough antioxidant reserves, and that can start to break down barriers. So it's, it's possible that it can play a, tr- a role, but it's not, it's not directly linked that if you get implants, you're going to lose tolerance, right? You may lose tolerance because your immune system is not healthy enough, your antioxidants is already not there, and then that increased chemical load you know, adds another, another <laughs> factor into the overall load you have that then, then may like, tip a person over the edge. Okay, I don't really understand this. Maybe you will. Okay. Um, Treat is asking. Some say taking supplemental glutathione messes up with the natural body, the natural process of glutathione. No. That's, I don't know what that means. 
Yes, taking natural glutathione or taxin is not going to interfere with your own body's ability to make it. It's not how this works. Okay. Yeah. I know people say, like, so we shouldn't take it? Like, no, we should take it. Okay. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Sorry. I no, it's not sense. going to. That's not how these enzymes work. Okay. I shouldn't ask this someone. Okay. Sorry. Um, um, Antoinette is asking, will, this, will the gut puzzle program help? Can it help with SIBO? So in the gut puzzle program, we actually have a whole section on small intestinal vegetable growth and SIBO and talk about digestion lifestyle. Will it impact you with SIBO? I have no idea. Um, you know, some SIBO cases are chronic injury to the nerve plexus. It's not about fixing it. It's just about how to function best with it. Um, sometimes SIBO is secondary to something like uh, hypochloridria. That's an easy fix. So it really depends on what the mechanisms are um, for it. But in the gut health, uh, gut puzzle program, we go over, the gut puzzle program we do is we basically teach you how to go through and understand what does a pancreatic enzyme deficiency look like? What does a pattern of small intestinal overall look like? What does dysbiosis clinically present? Which one of these symptoms do you have? Do you have intestinal permeability? What do you do for it? How to work what we call north to south, where you manage the things in order to have the best clinical effect. And then we put you through, we have cookbooks and, and workbooks and, and different things to really help you through the whole process so you can understand understand the big picture. The more educated you personally become on how the gut works and how it can dysfunction and what's been published to help each of these pathways, the easier it is to figure out what what is going to work for you and the right questions to ask when you're working with other healthcare providers and where to seek more information. So it'll definitely educate you as far as any direct effects for your SIBO. I don't. It, it's it's possible or may may do nothing. Okay, um, if someone has a sulfur, hold on. If Gail's saying if someone has a sulfur sensitivity, would taking glutathione be problematic? Yeah, for people that that don't do well with sulfur, taking glutathione is usually doesn't work because glutathione is pretty much sulfur. <laughs> the majority of the glutathione compound is sulfur. So if you're sulfur sensitive, you're probably better off using different antioxidants. Um, you can use grapeseed extract, green tea extract, acai, whatever. They're all going to be beneficial. So someone is saying, what if I can't have fermented foods when so much info says it's what you need for gut health? Yeah, I mean, listen, you have to listen to your body. Some people cannot handle certain fermented foods. Um, and, and the issue with a lot of people that have fermented food issues is that they just may not be able to handle a big load at once. So, like, they have to start very slow or their the microbiome is just not able to handle it. Uh, so you have to... As we say, work north to south. You may have to improve digestion first. You may have to slowly start to make changes in the microbiome so, you sh- so you, you're actually able to tolerate fermented foods. Like if you can't tolerate fermented food, that's a really bad sign. That means you're probably have, I would only guess, some significant degree of dysbiosis where you can't handle a fiber load uh, into your system. So uh, you got to figure that out. Okay. Owen. What is the relationship between cortisol levels, inflammation, and the health of the gut? Wow. That's an easy one. <laughs> what is the relationship between cortisol levels, yeah. which body releases under stress responses? Okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, crud. Oh, you lost it? Yeah, it went away. Hold on, I'll think of it again. Well, cortisol... Inflammation and the health of the gut. Inflammation and the health of the gut. Okay. Yeah. So cortisol it has, a, has a bidirectional effect on its impact on inflammation and health of the gut. So cortisol in the initial stages of its release, like when you have an acute stress, is anti-inflammatory. It has an anti-inflammatory effect, calms everything down, right? That's when people have like a joint injury, they get a cortisone shot, it immediately dampens the inflammation. 
that's different than long-term chronic cortisol. So long-term chronic cortisol is going to is going to really affect the body differently. So this is the difference between like acute responsive stress that you need to release cortisol versus chronic unhealthy stress um, that that causes the cortisol levels to stay elevated. And chronic unhealthy cortisol levels will put the body into what's called a catabolic state. So you're usually, you know, anabolic state, your body can recover, you can build muscle, you can grow, you can regenerate. Catabolic, your body's just breaking down and it can't recover very well. So when people have high cortisol as they get into a catabolic state, they can lose their um, barriers, they can lose their lung barrier, they can lose their blood-brain barrier, they can lose their gut barrier. So now proteins contributing their immune response really promote inflammation. So in, in the so when we look at cortisol, in the acute stages, it's beneficial for inflammation and even the health of your gut. In chronic cortisol states, it can have this catabolic effect, which can then really disrupt your barriers and really promote um, some inflammatory responses. Um, okay. Yes. Question. Uh-oh. There's an apple cider vinegar test I need to go to, but i got to find it. Um, okay. What about histamine being increased by fermented foods, especially with someone with... Yeah, you know, we did it. I'm sorry, go ahead. Has DAO S&P. Sorry. Listen, if you have a, DA, a real true DAO issue and you can't handle histamine, you have histamine intolerant mast cell activation syndrome, then you may not be able to handle fermented foods. Oh, a right. real true one. Right, a real true one. Like, you really have that confirmed. But, you know, there's a, his, you know the hist, antihistamine diet has become a really trendy diet, and it's really having people avoid foods that are really healthy for them, like fermented foods, because they think anyone that has lots of food sensitivities must have this, you know, must reduce their histamine levels. Um, we did another chat talk on mass activation syndrome <laughs> histamine, where we went into all the details behind that. But, uh, yeah, if you, if you actually truly have uh, DAO enzyme inability to deal with histamines, then certain fermented foods will be difficult for you to tolerate. It's not that. Then you're going to really look at the microbiome. Okay, so the people are saying, what about when cortisol is too low? But there's no reference to what they're talking about. I'm sorry. Yes, if cortisol is too low, it was probably in relation to gut inflammation. If cortisol okay. is too low, um, then you don't have that. The, sometimes you might need to have that cortisol spike up so you can have that anti-inflammatory effect. So you can also see people that have chronic pain and inflammation centers where they just don't have any cortisol reserves anymore. So, you know, again, cortisol should be able to spike up when there needs to be an anti-inflammatory effect and just burst out, and that really calms everything down. Um, so if you're flatlined and you can't really raise your cortisol, you won't be able to, you may have some inability to, to adapt or deal with stress, right? Uh, inflammation, I should say. Um, so you're going to have to have this balance of, of cortisol. You need to be able to produce it when you need to. So you, if you're flatlined, that's not good. And then if it's high all the time, then that puts you in a catabolic state, which is also not good. So you, you know, it's got to be, again, balanced, right? Okay, so Susan's asking, on the apple cider vinegar challenge ebook, Dr. Crossing says, if you are unaware, unsure whether you have a high or low stomach acid, ask your healthcare provider to run a lab test to measure your stomach acid levels, which... Uh, which lab test does he recommend to determine this? Oh, that's a gastric Heidelberg test. That's a lab test. It's not many, you know, you, you can find it out there. It's a gastric Heidelberg test. Okay. Say again. Gastric Heidelberg test. Okay. Okay. High dose vitamin C can it help with mast cell activation. There's a, did we do a talk on mast cell activation? Yeah, we need to talk on this. Because people probably should look at that. Yeah, next question. High dose vitamin C. Okay, never mind. <laughs> 
can you speak to chronic constipation? Even though I'm eating a whole foods, plant-based diet relieved by magnesium citrate. Right. So there's a lot of people that suffer from chronic constipation. They just don't know why, and they're eating a healthy diet, and they can't figure that out. Um, So this is exactly why we put together the gut puzzle program, (laughs) to teach you go through each of these steps. So intestinal motility is a really important mechanism in order for you to have normal digestion. And intestinal motility isn't just based on the foods you eat. Intestinal motility is based on your brain-to-gut access and all the nerve plexes in your gut. Now, um, certain certain gastrointestinal conditions can impact motility. Um, like if you have bacteria that produce uh, a lot of hydrogen, your gut, your gut motility and bowel movements are much faster. If you have lots of bacteria that produce methane, uh, you may have your gut motility shut down. So you could have like a dysbiosis SIBO that could be causing that. But it also could just be because the, the um, brain gut axis isn't working. Some people get chronic inflammation in the gut and their gut nervous system degenerates. Um, one of the, some people get early neurodegenerative diseases that impacts their gut and they start to have their nervous system in their gut degenerate and they have motility issues. Um, so those are you know some of the things you should think about. Uh, brain gut access pathway um, and inflammation in the nerve plexus. It's actually a red flag. Uh, you really want to make sure you don't have any signs of past head injury that could be impacting your overall health. You want to make sure that uh, uh, you don't have any early signs of Parkinsonism. That's uh, sometimes early Parkinsonism um, shows up in the gut first. The earliest symptom is chronic constipation that can last for 10, 20 years bef- way before they, anyone develops tremors, then followed by stiffness and rigidity. We go through all that in the Gut Health Puzzle Program, by the way. Um, and if those symptoms are there, then you really might have this neurodegenerative battle that you're dealing with. And for some people, if their nerve plexus is starting to degenerate, then you didn't, you're going to have to take stool softeners and magnesium to 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 optimize your gut function. Okay. Um, how do you know if you have chronic high cortisol levels? Is there a test you can run or do? Yes. Yeah, so if you want to measure your cortisol levels to see if they're high, um, there's two ways to measure cortisol. Well, there's different ways to measure cortisol. You can measure it in the urine. You can measure it in blood tests, in serum, or you can measure it with saliva. So if you're trying to look at functional levels of cortisol that you're producing throughout the day, um, the best test would be like a saliva cortisol rhythm. Uh, the blood cortisol tests that are available um, have ranges that are so broad that they're really only looking for disease, not just your overall function levels. And the urinary cortisol levels... Uh, still haven't been validated enough to really trust them. Even though some labs will measure urinary levels throughout the day and do like a cortisol map, those are still um, not substantiated. Whereas the salivary cortisol test is without any doubt a substantiated validated test to measure cortisol levels throughout the day. So you might want to look under salivary cortisol profile testing to, to look at your cortisol levels throughout the day. Can you... Um... Spell out the Heidelberg test, please. Um, I have to spell it out. I got to look at it. I don't know. Okay, we'll get back to that. Yeah, get back to it. Um, okay. Does, does poor methylation affect the gut in any way? Or does that or does that just increase the propensity for inflammation throughout the body? Say that again. Does poor methylation... Affect the gut in any way. Wait, wait, wait. I found out Heidelberg. Okay. <laughs> H-E-I-D-E-L-B-E-R-G. One more time. H-E-I-D-E-L-B-E-R-G. Yay! I think it's German. Okay. Yeah, okay. Next question. Michael, 
Does poor methylation affect the gut in any way? Or does that just increase the propensity for inflammation throughout the body? Right. So poor methylation. So if you guys aren't familiar with the methylation is like a one carbon group and your body has to be able to transport one carbon group for lots of different biochemical processes your body needs. And the transfer of that one carbon group is called a methyl group. So methylation is that process. So like hundreds of biochemical mechanisms are dependent upon methylation, right? So it's a really critical physio- step of physiology. What they found is that when people don't methylate per- very well, that they can't convert uh, an amino acid called homocysteine down to cysteine, and homocysteine is very inflammatory. And this is why some people, will they get a routine blood test, their physicians will check something called homocysteine because they've found that having your body not methylate well and having this homocysteine stay around your blood can really damage blood vessels. And it's been uh, clearly linked to risk for cardiovascular disease. So uh, if you don't methyl, if you don't methylate, um, you're probably going to have some issues with higher homocysteine and that higher homocysteine can cause inflammation all throughout your body, including your tight junctions of your gut and uh, create an inflammatory pathway, inflammatory imbalance that way as well. Someone saying, oh, like in Breaking Bad. I don't know what that is. Oh, Breaking Bad, right. Is that? Yeah, you're right. I should have thought about that. I've never seen that, so I yeah, don't know. It's not for you. Oh, no, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good to know. Okay, yeah. that's funny. Um, <laughs> so, oh my gosh, hold on, sorry. Um, Carmen is saying, in the management of SIBO, the FODMAP, FODMAP diet, right? Yeah. Sorry, this Facebook is so bad today. Must be followed. For how long, or is it indefinite? Thank you. Right. For so for SIBO, um, the FODMAP diet has to sometimes be indefinite. Depends what the mechanism of SIBO is. So if there's actually damage and injury to nerve plexus in the gut, then your body will let you know it's forever. Because the minute you deviate from it, you're going to feel it. So um, for other people. There's other imbalances that may be causing SIBO. Like, for example, hypothyroidism has been shown to cause SIBO, and they get their hypothyroidism treated, and they no longer have to follow any kind of SIBO diet or guidelines. So uh, it depends on the mechanism. But majority of people that have SIBO tend to have some injury to their nerve plexus, some degeneration there, and their body will tell them, like, you need to get off uh, fructooligosaccharides and sugars and starches, and, and or you're going to have some severe bloating and distension. And I think we did a talk just on SIBO we recently. Did. So that's that's also available. By the way, if you guys haven't uh, um, follow us on Facebook, um, you'll get access to uh, all the different talks we're doing. So plus it helps us. We're trying to grow. And uh, it, it would really appreciate if you can follow us on Facebook. So really quickly, Robin and Jamie are asking, yeah. um, what factors do you look at to distinguish between chronic gut infections like SIBO, autoimmune neurology, and can by, um, butyrate be negative for SIBO? That's all in the SIBO talk. Like you go into depth. Yeah, the, I just want them to know that please go look at that because it's a big topic. Yeah, that was a big question. But I, I know we answer all, all of it in the SIBO talk, not to, because I only have a couple minutes. And, right. And it just won't make sense. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Like, yeah, please go to that. It's really, it's very easy. Um, okay, sorry. Uh, da, 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 da. Sorry, the breaking bad comment just makes me laugh. I don't know what it is. But I think... Okay. Um, good. One more question? Yeah. Can you speak a little bit... Oh, my God. Uh, sorry. The question was something like, can you speak a little bit about the antioxidant property of red meat? Antioxidant property of red meat? Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I don't really... You know, here's the thing. Red meat is very high in arachidonic acid, and 
and some people absolutely need arachidonic acid to balance out their immune system. But for most people, and that could have an anti-inflammatory effect. For for a lot of other people, arachidonic acid is going to cause uh, promote inflammatory pathways. So one, there's a pathway for inflammation that produces what are called prostaglandins, and prostaglandins can be anti-inflammatory or pro-inflammatory. And arachidonic acid promotes the pro-inflammatory. So like if you're having someone that's just eating the standard American diet all the time, red meat will probably add to that arachidonic load. Maybe it's not significant at all, or maybe for some people it isn't significant and causes inflammation. And there's also high amounts of arachidonic acid in things like butter. But if you take someone who just doesn't have any butter or any fat or any animal products whatsoever, and they're just not getting enough arachidonic acid, sometimes getting a little bit of arachidonic acid from whatever the source may be, can actually have an anti-inflammatory effect. So it's not going to be anti-inflammatory because of the nature of the substance in it. It's going to be anti-inflammatory based on if someone has a need for arachidonic acid or more likely for most people, it would be a pro-inflammatory food. Anyways. Okay, so one, one more. There's, there's a yeah, quick thing. So question. Joan is saying, figuring this stuff out is life-changing. It took me eight years, but the fire alarm is finally turned off and... I, and Turned off, and my life has never been better. I'm 61, and I feel like I'm 16. Never give up. Who's that? I just said, Joan. Her name's Joan. Good job, Joan. Thank I know. You I love that. it. I think that's fantastic. But it's also, a, like, if they haven't registered for yeah. this program, like, it really does help figure out. It's a, it's complex. It's not yeah. just, take this, you're better. It's yeah. figuring this stuff out. Yes, and in reality, you know, people don't know this, but when you talk to people, everyone's got dealing with something. <laughs> Yeah, that's very true. Even today's a great example. As we get older and our antioxidant systems become less efficient and our neurogenic inflammatory pathways get more active and we lose our immune tolerance, we're just so prone to developing inflammation. It's like, we, and, you know, a lot of us just start thinking like we have to constantly put effort into trying to maintain our health and sometimes things take over. But ultimately, there has to be some active effort put into those things to continue to function and feel better. So thanks again, Joan for sharing your story and uh, please check out the um the new gut health uh, the puzzle program uh what is it gut health solving the puzzle oh, program right. dr k news <laughs> and uh please follow us on facebook and thank you all for joining uh me and uh i hope you found something that was useful for you thank you so much you can find all of this information and more at drknews.com slash podcast there you'll find the show notes, readings, and links related to this episode. You can also find Dr. Karazian's blog at drknews.com. The best thing to do is sign up for his weekly newsletter, where he will update you on the latest research and clinical strategies related to chronic and autoimmune health conditions. On social, you can find him on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest with the username Datis Karazian. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. And note, no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical conditions they have, and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. To learn more about Dr. Karazian's disclosures and the companies he advises, please visit drknews.com forward slash about.